Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. We're going to read God's Word together. Uh, the first reading is from the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah was a prophet who lived about 750 years or so before Jesus. And we're going to read chapter 25, verses 1 to 9 together. So you can read along on the screen or uh, with your own Bibles there. <clears throat> o Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The palace of aliens is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rainstorm, the noise of aliens like heat in a dry place, you subdued the heat with the shade of clouds. The song of the ruthless was stilled. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Uh, our second reading today is from the book of Matthew, uh, which is an account of Jesus' life that we've been working through. Uh, and Jesus has been talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they pretty much do not like what he has to say. Um, we're going to start reading from chapter 22, but I'll just read verse 45 of chapter uh, 21 to kind of put it into context. It says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they realised that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. Uh, chapter 22 says, Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, tell those who have been invited, look, I've prepared my dinner and my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. 
The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe, and he said to him, "'Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe?' And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, "'Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness.' where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. It's a funny thing to respond to God's word sometimes with those words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are things that are a little disturbing sometimes you're reading God's word. And so good and important to um, remind ourselves this is from the Lord. There's something here for us. Um, This has got nothing to do with the sermon I'm about to preach, but um, I don't know if you noticed in the translation that we uh, that we use on the screen in our pew Bibles in the um, passage from Isaiah, being terrified by the noise of aliens. That was funny this morning. I found that a little bit a little bit funny. You kind of you, you get you get what I'm saying. Talking about enemies from foreign nations, but um, you know, even if little green men do come down and make a lot of noise, we are safe in the Lord. That is still true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, some people really do want to ruin things for everyone else. Do you know people who are like that, who just always, whether by uh, just kind of personality or whether deliberately, they just want to make things really hard to enjoy for everybody else? Uh, you know those kinds of people who are never quite satisfied, who always uh, have an angle on something, who always seem to be seeing through whatever is in front of them in such a way they can't actually just enjoy that thing for what it is. Uh, everyone else, according to people like this, is, is really deep down selfish and weak. The system is rigged. Success is impossible, so don't really bother trying. Uh, so-called good people are really just out to make themselves look good before others and get ahead. Uh, cynicism is one name for this kind of outlook, and the inner west of Sydney is, of course, the kind of place where a healthy dose of cynicism is a fairly common trait. I will admit to having some of it myself. Uh, cynicism can be pretty, pretty satisfying, to be fair, It makes us feel like we're on the inside, we're in the know, we're able to see what's really going on in the world around us. Of course, when we experience that cynicism turned against us as people or against things that are dear to us, it can be pretty deflating. Uh, It's true, uh, according to uh, a bunch of different health studies now, that uh, cynicism is actually a real risk to your health. Uh, Studies have found a correlation between a cynical outlook and an increased risk of both dementia and heart attack. But even if it doesn't kill you, one thing that cynicism will kill is joy. It's hard to have a cynical outlook on the world around you and at the same time to revel in the goodness, the delight, the beauty of the things that you find around you. We're continuing this morning uh, through Matthew's Gospel and Jesus is teaching in parables again. He's addressing the chief priests and the elders who've tried to trap him into incriminating himself so they can do what they need to do to get rid of him. Uh, Jesus is busy talking about the kingdom of heaven drawing near, that vision from Isaiah 25, feasting with the Lord. He's talking about filling the hearts of tax collectors and prostitutes with hope that God might actually really love them, and not only that, but change them. And the chief priests and the elders want to shut it down. They're cynics. 
In response to their cynicism, Jesus tells a series of of parables. And in this one before us today, he uses that image of a wedding banquet to tell us that cynicism doesn't only kill joy, it can leave you on the outside of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to unpack this under three headings this morning. I think on the screen, if we flick through the slides, uh, there should be a slide with them there. We're going to uh, work through it like this. Uh, Firstly, how is it that the kingdom is like a wedding banquet? Secondly, uh, there there are three ways here uh, to miss out on the kingdom. And thirdly, uh, how do you dress in the kingdom? Point one, how is the kingdom like a wedding banquet? The first thing to notice in this passage is that Jesus is telling us something about the kingdom of heaven. It's there in verse one. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gives a wedding banquet for his son. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is uh, Matthew's preferred uh, term for what the other gospels usually call the kingdom of God. It's a way of referring to what happens when God shows up as king, when the whole world comes under his good and gracious rule, the way that things are when everything and everyone is aligned to the way that things were always meant to be, when nothing's out of joint, when everything lines up well just the way it's supposed to. It's not so much about a heaven that we go to after we die, but something actually that we can have if we trust in Jesus right now and live in and lean into. So Jesus is telling us that the whole story which follows is a word picture of what it's like when God's rule over his world is finally realised. And in particular, here Jesus is speaking about what's happening right now in his ministry as he tells this story in the week leading up to his crucifixion. Uh, you, could, you could translate uh, those uh, words at the beginning of the verse, actually, that the kingdom of heaven is becoming like this. Jesus is saying something about what's happening right there in his ministry. And he's explaining to the chief priests and the elders what it is that they're seeing right in front of them. And so in what way is the kingdom of heaven like this story that Jesus tells? There are a few things to notice about it. Uh, firstly, the kingdom is a joyful celebration. Verse 3, he, the king, sent his slaves to call those who'd been invited to the wedding banquet. Uh, This wedding banquet in question here is uh, what we'd call the wedding reception, really, rather than the ceremony itself. It's the party to celebrate the marriage. And in those days, as is still the case in Middle Eastern cultures, the party would have gone on uh, not just for a night, but for many, many days afterwards. So what's the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a massive party. Jesus is suggesting that perhaps the closest thing in our experience to the kingdom of God is an awesome, sumptuous, belly-laughing, full of brilliant conversation, lose-yourself-in-the-moment dancing, all-round general banger of a party. That if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, that's the closest thing in our experience to it. And why wouldn't it be, of course? After all, what the kingdom of God brings to you, what Jesus offers to you, is absolute forgiveness for all the stuff that you're really glad that no one else knows about. The glorious possibility of being perfectly known and perfectly loved at the same time by the same person. And the confidence that in the end, it's not guns and violence and power that win, but grace and joy and justice. And along with that, the deep joy and deep satisfying purpose every day of your life to get on with that grace and joy and justice right now in this life here. To live for a cause that is utterly glorious. And where the only thing you lose as you participate in this life with Jesus is your guilt and your shame and, frankly, your boredom. That's the kingdom of God. And that's why the closest thing to it is a magnificent banquet party like the one in this story here. It's no wonder, really, that Jesus uses this image of feasting and celebration to talk about the kingdom, because when you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus spends actually quite a lot of time doing that himself. 
Uh, his first miracle, of course, is turning water into wine at another wedding banquet. Uh, meals were central to his ministry, and the fact that he ate and drank with so-called sinners all the time was one of the charges that the religious elites just later on in this week will level against him at his trial. They labeled him as a glutton and a drunkard. Uh, one biblical scholar who wrote a really great book uh, all about Jesus' meals with sinners in the Gospels, uh, he suggests that actually you might call Jesus the consummate party animal. He knew how to enjoy life. He knew how to party. And that's the invitation that he holds out to us. He says, come to the party with me. Come and share the good life with me. Come and find a joy with me that nothing can take away from you. And just like a wedding banquet, of course, it's a joy that's shared. Life in the kingdom is life together with all the other guests, enjoying one another and increasing one another's joy as we share together in the generosity and presence of the king. Sounds pretty great. That's what the Lord holds out to us. That's the first thing we learn. The kingdom is like a joyful celebration. Uh, here's the second thing we learn from this parable. Uh, just as wedding receptions are invite only, so entry to the kingdom is by invitation. You have to be invited in. Uh, but we see at the same time that it's not an exclusive invitation. It's, a, it's an open invite, basically, and not just open, but persistent. Uh, there are those who reject the king's invitation. We'll come back to them in just a moment. Uh, but for now, notice how the king responds to the rejection that he receives. Verse 3, he sent his slaves to call those who'd been invited to the wedding banquet, but they wouldn't come. And so again, he sent other slaves, saying, tell those who've been invited, look, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. So the invitation is rejected. And what does the king do in response? He doubles down. Actually, he resends the invitation with more detail. No, no, really, you don't want to miss this. This is going to be great. Please come to the banquet. And once his invitation is rejected a second time, his response is to throw the doors open wide to everyone. Verse 9, go into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. And so those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all who they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Everyone, good and Bad. And the, the Greek text actually has it the other way around, bad and good, just to emphasize the point. The invitation to the joyful celebration of the kingdom is for everyone. doesn't matter what kind of person, the king wants them there. We have a word for that, don't we, that we talk about all the time. It's grace. The kingdom of heaven is like this gracious king who extends the invitation to everyone. So the kingdom of heaven is like a king throwing a wedding banquet for his son because it's a joyful celebration and because entry is by gracious invite to everyone, open and persistent. Uh, the third thing that we see here is that it's a joyful celebration of something. It's not just a random party for the sake of it. It's a wedding banquet. And not just any wedding banquet, it's the wedding of the heir to the throne. And that means that whatever else you might say about this party, how good and glorious it is, is not simply a private affair. It's a public gathering. It's a political event. It's like a state dinner, if you like. And some of the things that are a little bit harder to get our heads around about this parable start to make more sense when you see it in that light. Invitations to this wedding banquet, you see, are issued according to a strict protocol. Uh, in one sense, they were more a summons, really, than an invitation, refusal of which amounted not merely to personal insult, but a political statement of the most extreme kind, a refusal to recognize the king and his son. Uh, in short, to refuse the invitation was an act of insurgence. 
And that gets us to our second point, three ways to put yourself outside the kingdom. Uh, the banquet is prepared, the best animals have been slaughtered, the invitation, the summons, if you like, has been extended, not just once but twice, and then opened up to anyone. Uh, and what's the response to that invitation? Uh, verse 5, they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them and killed them. Overreaction, maybe? There's two groups of people here in, in those two verses. The first simply refused to come, uh, just like the son in the parable a few weeks back who refused to do his father's will. They're just not willing. Uh, they make light of it, we're told. They go about their everyday business as though the king had never called on them. They say, essentially, uh, it's, you know, it's not that big a deal to be invited by the king to, a wedding, to the wedding banquet of his heir. I've got stuff to do. Uh, there are people sometimes, you might even know some of them, who respond to the gospel that way, don't they? Uh, they're simply disinterested. Uh, I don't really want or care about what Jesus is offering. I'm happy to stick with what I've got. Um, and, uh, you know, I reckon our world makes that a very easy response to the gospel, that kind of distraction. We have a lot of what we need and even more. Uh, the vast majority of Christians around the world, of course, are poor. And study after study shows that religion of whatever kind is almost universally central to the lives of the poor and far less so to the lives of the rich. We have so much, it's really easy to respond with kind of indifference to the invitation that's held out. What the parable is showing us here is that this kind of response to Jesus is actually always more than disinterest. It actually goes deeper. It's a form of sedition. It's a rejection of the king's authority and that of his heir. And all the more tragic because that authority is exercised always through and through in grace. An authority put to work in order to make everything new. That's the first group. The second group here um, go a little harder at it, don't they? They're not just disinterested, they're angry, so they kill the slaves of the king. Nuts, right? They receive an invitation to the most important and wonderful event they'll ever experience, and they want to kill the messenger. Uh, there might be people you know in your life as well. Um, you may even have been one of them who respond to the gospel this way. It makes them angry. Grace makes people angry. Uh, perhaps there's something true in that, of course. Uh, accepting this invitation means that life needs to change. Like those tax collectors and prostitutes who show up the chief priests and the elders earlier in this chapter. But it's hard to accept that. And it's hard to be told that you need to change, that you need somebody else's help to be what it is that you're supposed to be. Uh, and so these people here hear the invitation a second time and, and they flip out, actually. Uh, it's a pretty mundane example, but I've had conversations with like a, a bunch of people more than you might expect over the years who've essentially said to me, look, if I became a follower of Jesus, then I'd have to, there'd have to be changes in my sexual life. And I'm just not willing to do that. A mundane example on one level, but to be honest, um, sorry to say, most of us are fairly mundane when it comes down to it. And most of our sin is fairly mundane as well, pretty run of the mill. But all of those things, all those moments where it's just really hard to accept the invitation because you know something will have to change about your life, that too amounts to a rejection of the authority that God and his son rightly have over our lives. And in the context of the parable, the king is quite rightly enraged. They've essentially declared his kingdom illegitimate, and so he sends in the troops. So there's two ways right there that you can miss out on the kingdom, disinterest or actually just open hostility. Uh, the third way that we see in this parable is a little different. 
the parable could end there, right, with the destruction of those uh, who um, uh, have rejected the king and the bringing in of all the others to fill the banquet hall and give right and due honour to his son. But instead we get this little snippet, uh, snippet from uh, later on in the evening when the party's kind of well underway. In verse 11, uh, when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who wasn't wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, What's going on here? It's kind of a bit of an abrupt shift from the perspective of the narrative, isn't it? Where did this guy come from? Was he one of the original invitees? Was he one of those scooped in off the streets? Or was he someone in a different category altogether? And if he was scooped in off the streets at the last minute, then would he have had time to get a change of clothes? Those kinds of questions are interesting enough, but you've got to remember what kind of story this is. A kind of a parable, a word picture, which is making a simple point, and it's that simple big picture point that matters. We're not supposed to look for meaning in every detail. That's not how these stories work. The point that's being made is very clear. It plays on the fact that in the ancient world, just as for us today, there's an appropriate way to dress for a wedding, for an occasion like this. This guy's turned up without a wedding robe. It's like turning up to a black tie event in Speedos. Try that sometime. It's not just a social faux pas, of course. It communicates something about what he thinks about the whole event and about the host as well. This banquet? I could take it or leave it. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to enjoy the spoils, but, you know, I'm not really that invested. The host? Who is hosting this party again? I don't even know that guy. It's not a mistake here. It's It's a deliberate snub. And that fact that this is a deliberate snub is confirmed by the conversation that he has with the king. The king actually gives him a chance to defend himself. Uh, The king is the only person who speaks in this entire parable, the only one whose words we hear reported directly, uh, and they're always actually words of grace. Here's a guy not wearing the right clothes, pretty obvious that he's snubbing the host in the party, and the king says to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? He addresses him politely and graciously, and and what he does actually is gives him a chance to explain himself. Maybe he couldn't afford a wedding robe. Perhaps it had been stolen on the way to the the wedding banquet, or or maybe he'd spilled wine all over it early in the evening and needed to just then wear whatever he could find. Even when affronted like this, the king is gracious. But you see, the man has no response. There is no excuse. He knows he's in the wrong, and he's condemned by his own silence. How might we characterise this third response to the king's invitation? Uh, This man's essentially RSVP'd yes, and he's turned up, but then he's made it pretty clear that he he doesn't really want to be there. He's not really that interested in the party. He's not really that interested in the king's son, the heir to the throne whose wedding is being celebrated. His actions show him up to be a hypocrite. He's not even honest enough to reject the invitation in the first place. He wants to join the banquet without giving due honour to the king. Uh, So there are three ways here to miss out on the party, to be excluded from the kingdom. They all end up in judgment. You can't reject the king and expect to receive his protection. You can't thumb your nose at the joyful celebration of the kingdom and then expect to enjoy its benefits. Instead, you end up on the outside, in the darkness. And the kind of image of gnashing of teeth there is is, is kind of, uh, in the ancient world, grinding your teeth was a way of expressing um, your grumpiness, essentially, at someone who who you think has wronged you. He's sitting outside in the darkness at night time now, watching the party from the outside going, I kind of really actually now that I think about it, wish that I wasn't there, and I can see what I'm missing out. 
You end up on the outside in the darkness, ruining the decisions that you've made that have led you to missing out on everything the king had offered. This third man, uh, really, it's a form of cynicism, I think, actually. To say, ah, that party, could it really be that good? I'm here, but I'm not really here. What does all of that mean for us? Uh, for some of you here today, uh, you haven't yet received the invitation that's being held out to you. Uh, maybe you've responded angrily. Maybe you've been disinterested. Uh, maybe you're just hearing the invitation for the first time. The true king, the God who made you, the God who sent his own son to rescue you, he wants you with him at his table to share in his boundless goodness and glory. He wants to heal you and transform you. He wants to honour you. And all he asks in return is that you honour him. And so if that's you, uh, take the invitation. It's worth it. Won't always be easy, but there is joy with Jesus that nothing in this world can ever take away. If that's you, if you haven't taken that invitation yet, take it. Do it today. For most of us here today, uh, though, we've already said yes, we're, we're in the kingdom, we're in the party, we're enjoying the banquet, we're following the king. And so what, what are we to do with all of this? I want to focus in especially on that third response, and that's what we're going to do uh, here in our final point. How is it that we should dress in the kingdom? This whole parable is spoken primarily to the chief priests and the elders. It's Jesus' answer to them, and what he's doing primarily is describing the nature of their, their own response to Jesus. Here is what you are doing in how you're responding to me, Jesus is saying. Uh, by failing to treat Jesus as the one with the authority of God, they're rejecting God and so excluding himself from his kingdom and all the benefits that come with it. If you're a Christian, that's not you. Uh, you're not excluded from the party. Uh, you're one who's accepted the invitation and entered in, and Jesus promises that once you're in, you're in. The Father, uh, Those the Father has given to Jesus, he says, he will never lose. And yet the whole wedding attire debacle uh, does give us a way to think about our own lives as we follow our king. Being addressed appropriately is about rightly honouring the king who's invited us in. He's given us the great honour of calling us into his kingdom and our response ought to be to do everything in our power to honour him in return. And so it's worth asking the question, uh, what areas of your heart and your life uh, are not fully honouring to the Lord Jesus? What parts of you are not dressed appropriately fit for his presence? Uh, perhaps you want to ask whether or not your care for others reflects his care for you, whether your sexual life reflects his own standards of righteousness. Does the way that you speak to others and about others reflect his words of grace and life? Do your plans and priorities reflect his humility? Does the way you go about your work reflect the justice and peace of his kingly rule? All those things matter. All those things are a matter of honouring the king who's invited us into his kingdom. Uh, but here's a specific one that um, really comes to mind for me as I read this parable, and something for you to think about and work on today, perhaps in the week ahead, uh, one tied more intimately and directly, if you like, to this particular story that Jesus tells. If the kingdom of heaven is a joyful celebration, a great party reveling in the presence of the king, then surely the best kind of wedding robe, the most appropriate clothing, is joy. If this is what the kingdom is like, then we should be putting on joy, as the New Testament commands us to in several places. The thing about that undressed wedding guest is that he's utterly joyless. He's at the party, but doing his best not to be at the party. He's like the ultimate cynic, really. I'll just get close enough to make it clear that I'm not really here for this, actually. It's all a bit much. I'm going to stand off a little bit aloof, a little too cool. I'm a little too serious for this. I wonder if something that the Spirit has for us in this parable of Jesus today is uh, the encouragement uh, not to be so cynical, actually, not to be so serious all the time. 
not to secretly roll our eyes at the expressions of faith we see in those around us or the kind of life they lead or the parts of church life that we just don't like or that seem a little bit lame or aren't the way that we'd do it if it was up to us. Maybe the road we need to take out and get dry cleaned, perhaps, if it's been locked away for a while and to put back on again, maybe the road that we need is to rediscover the serious fun of following Jesus. The joy of knowing ourselves to be known and loved by the Lord who made us. The joy of entering, uh, the joy of enjoying this remarkable world that He's given to us. The joy of unlikely friends and companions with whom we share His table. Uh, the joy of living life as though it's an adventure that Jesus has called us to share with Him. I hope there'll be a little bit of that as we share lunch together today. Actually, just a bunch of laughter together as we share in the joy of following Jesus. That kind of joy is central to the Christian life. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples in John's Gospel, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And it's key as well, actually, to the part he's given us to play as everyday witnesses in his world. Uh, Because it might just be that the joy of the Lord expressed in your life is the very thing that moves someone else from disinterest to curiosity or from anger to longing And if they heed the gracious invitation to join us in the kingdom of justice and peace and love and wholeness and joy that the Lord holds out. Uh, Now, what do you do do about this? How do you you kind of rekindle that kind of joy if that's what you need in your life? Uh, Of course, you can't will yourself into joy any more than you can will yourself into obedience. And the only way to get your joy back is to go back to the source. We all need to do that, of course, because it turns out none of us actually come dressed rightly for the kingdom. None of us are actually worthy of the invitation that's extended to us. We're all the riffraff brought in off the streets. And really, we should wonder every single day, how how did I get in here? How was I allowed into this party? Who put me on the list? The joy begins, and this is how to rekindle it, right? The joy begins when you remember that it was the Son of God himself who brought us in. The heir to the kingdom became a servant and was sent out into the dusty streets of this world. The one who had been adorned in the most glorious of robes, the robes of royalty for all eternity, exchanged them for a crown of thorns. And his robe was stripped from him and torn to pieces by the very people he came to invite into his wedding banquet. And they killed him, sending him into the outer darkness of death. But he returned from there to clothe those who he has chosen with his very own robes of righteousness to wash our filthy rags, to make us worthy of a seat in his father's house. And now he sits enthroned as king, granting us a joy that even now can never be stolen away. And when he returns, a banquet of eternal laughter that death will never silence. That's our king. That's how we got in. Let's give him thanks and praise for that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious king. There are all kinds of ways in which uh, it's difficult for us sometimes to be dressed the way that we should. Uh, Father, we love to live our own lives. We have our own ideas, our own desires about what things should look like. And yet, Father, we uh, know that actually your way is good, that there's joy for us when we throw our lot in with you. And so we thank you for this gracious invitation you've extended to us. We do pray, Father, if there are those in the room uh, here today who haven't yet received that invitation, that this moment might be the time that they do so. Uh, Father, uh, let us take uh, from your hand that invitation into eternal joy with you. For those of us, Father, who are walking that path uh, with the Lord Jesus, who've been uh, feasting with him for some time now, but who maybe our clothes have gotten a little tattered, 
Maybe we've gotten a little bit too cynical and, and don't feel the joy as we used to. Father, rekindle our joy. Father, give us a deep sense of the beauty and grace, the justice and peace, the fun, the joy, the feasting of life with the Lord Jesus. And do that, Father, by continuing to drive deep into our hearts the joy that it is to know what he has done for us, becoming like us so that we might share in his glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.